4: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy, happy Tuesday. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and I am back here again in the producer hot seat slash uh, host seat. It's Tuesday. It's our favorite day of the week, and the reason why is because John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. John, thank you so much for being my emotional support (laughs) during this (laughs) challenging morning.
3: Always glad to be here with you. You're the triple threat. You're the host. You're the activist. You're the producer. It's amazing.
4: Activist. Uh, I never really thought of myself as that. But um, I, you know... Silent observer? Activist <laughs> sounds better. <laughs> Passive activist. That sounds good. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, wow. So it's been a couple weeks or so since the mm-hmm. DNC ended. And uh, thank you so much for all your coverage, by the way, that we aired here on the uh, on the show. Um, and... It, it, I don't know how to explain it. 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 You know, lots of people know who tune into the show that I've been super depressed. <laughs> I think a lot of people have been depressed and have been impacted, affected, you know, by everything that's happening in our world, whether that, uh, the, that would be something tragic, uh, loss of lives, the violence that we face here in this country, the racism that we face here in this country. But also, you know, this political campaign has really impacted people negatively, don't you think?
3: Um, I think it's all over the place. it's It's very it's very unusual for a campaign to be this kind of wild, especially at this stage. Um, this is usually where both campaigns are out. you know, in the post convention, they're trying to energize their their supporters and really stick on message. And instead, you know, we're fighting over the Constitution. and uh, just last week, I, I was reading this this morning. Donald Trump, I guess, labeled the Philippines and Filipinos as as terrorists and animals. Oh no! And it's like, yep, that's that's America 2016.
4: Uh, you know, you, you made a comment, and um, I hate to you know point to your Facebook page, but I do read your posts. <laughs> <laughs> People should follow you on Facebook. But um, you made a comment the other day regarding Hillary Clinton and her campaign, and you saw an ad for Hillary here in California, uh, which you know we are confident that that California will more than likely vote for for Hillary over Donald Trump. Uh, and you mentioned something like she, is she just burning cash? What, what do you think? Where, where do you think her campaign is at? And what are your thoughts and maybe even just some guesses as to what this campaign might turn out to be as we inch toward, you know, November?
3: Sure. Um, the she's, at a, at a position, do you know the old phrase, I think Paul Begala has said this, but he was actually kind of paraphrasing Napoleon, which is that when your enemy is self-destructing, don't interfere. And uh, she got really lucky. She not only had a convention that um, obviously ended with her nomination, uh, There, it was boisterous and rambunctious and disruptive at times, but um, largely seems to have done her very well in, in terms of polling and getting most democrats behind her which is you know the role of a a national convention whether you agree with her or not that's what the convention is supposed to do and then she comes off that and instead of you know some of the more negative stuff like everyone continuing to talk about the bernie protesters and and uh the dnc emails donald trump comes in and for at least a week just totally dominates the uh media coverage with you know again this this Stupid fight with these parents of this you know guy who died in 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 duty in Afghanistan, and uh, various other things fighting with Republican Party officials, so much so that you know Republican officials were talking about having an intervention with him and, and such. <laughs> so where's the Clinton administration or the Clinton campaign that'll <laughs> soon to be the Clinton administration? Where is the Clinton campaign right now? I think they're certainly in that area of kind of looking okay what is actually changing what we expect to happen around the country what states that we might not have had to worry about should we worry about answer none because just because the numbers are going our way right now and there are certain states that they would not have expected to win in any normal year Mm -hmm. uh arizona georgia virginia is usually kind of a tight one Um, and so they're able to like reduce spending in colorado and perhaps move it to some other places. Now, actually, the ad I saw on TV was last night on the Olympics. I suspect it was a national buy. Oh, got it. But usually you can segment even national buys. So, you you know, again, right. why spend money to get California? <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, speaking of Hillary Clinton and her campaign, I think that, uh, you know, we will definitely talk about her and not so much in, in a space of which, you know, most liberal progressive talk show host may be talking about her and that is we've got a great campaign you know coming forward I think that it's okay to talk about some of the challenges that Hillary Clinton might face and so today we'll focus on one of those challenges and that is a, her race problem Um, So let's get today's program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our our special guest today is here with us by phone, and she is a young Black Lives Matter protester who interrupted Hillary Clinton's uh, fundraiser, one that she did in South Carolina, um, and called attention to a comment that she made in 1996, Uh, while campaigning for her husband, Bill Clinton, for the 1994 Violent Crime Control Act, in which she referred to young black men as super predators. Let's welcome Ashley Williams to the program. Give me a second while I pull up her phone. Ashley, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. So let's go back to... um, First, let's 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 talk about that the 1994 Violent Crime Control Act in which uh, Hillary Clinton as campaigning had made this comment and kind of, you know, your take on what she meant by by this comment. And I'll, I'll just read very quickly what Clinton had actually said. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kind of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first, we need to bring them to heal.
1: Yeah, so I believe that that was representative of her um, pathologizing um, kind of the conditions that black youth and youth of color find themselves in um, and also having to respond to some of those conditions. Um, And so... It's very interesting, um, we have to bring them to heal, you know, I did a lot of research to make sure I was um, within context, and I realized that, you know, that was something that, you know, that's how you refer to animals, that's how you refer to people or to entities that aren't human beings in terms of bringing them to heal, um, to kind of, you know, teach them to change their ways or to teach them to unlearn some of these behaviors that she was um, referring to, and so... I thought that that was really problematic, and I wanted to bring those things into question um, in terms of the national political climate that we find ourselves in here today.
3: What, what sort of behaviors do you think she was addressing with, with her
1: comments? Um, so she specifically, was, she specifically says, you know, youth being, and I think she used the word, violence, um, and gangs of kids, so referencing gangs and gang behavior is what, I, what I'm referring to. When I talk about how she's pathologizing in terms of how they respond, they're not. She doesn't acknowledge the conditions that may have brought these behaviors on. Instead, she's pathologizing the behavior.
4: Mm -hmm. I think it's very important also to go back and and uh, contextualize for our listeners um, the Violent Crimes Act that Bill Clinton or the Clintons actually had passed and what that. The results of that, the consequences of that act, um, and how it impacted the black community. What are your thoughts, Ashley?
1: I think it has helped to perpetuate the present industrial complex, and I think that it contributes to mass incarceration.
3: And was, and actually, you probably know more about this than I do. Was that a Clinton administration bill that they wrote, or was that from, and this was at the time when the Congress was controlled by the Gingrich Republicans, right? Was it a Republican bill or a Democrat bill? I mean, where did that come from? And how widespread, therefore, is what I'm getting at, is this view that she represents? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so since then, um, there's been a lot of research looking back to 94 and also 96 when the comments were made um, that the bill is actually something that went into effect in 94. Um, and so there... I. When I'm talking about the ways in which it contributes to, the mass, to mass incarceration and also the prison industrial complex, we know that it increased the likelihood of people of color um, to have interactions with the cops that would land them in jail, and then also in terms of like, the timing of how long these folks were in jail, um, it made these folks have longer sentences for crimes or for offenses that aren't, that aren't so egregious in terms of like, the effects of the bill.
3: Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, this is all in conjunction with really kind of other knock on effects of, or, or, or uh, uh, impacts or whatever, of, you know, yeah, you've, uh, getting uh, tougher stances being taken against certain folks for certain activities. For and sure. then often they're exactly the same folks who are not going to get good legal representation. So, right. you know, someone with a lot of money and, and some strings to pull is. Even if they're not getting special strings to pull, they're getting the full, you know, protections that might be afforded to them by the law. And yeah. some poor kid is not going to. And exactly. then yeah, you know, so this is all in this this, you know, Giuliani in New York doing get tough mm-hmm. and, and and uh the you know, stopping uh, stop and frisk becoming a a very popular thing.
4: Right. And and we have to fast forward to 2016, you know, and we're bringing up the 90s and some people don't want us to bring up the 90s. They don't want to be reminded of some of the mistakes Mm -hmm. that even the Democratic Party has made. But that was a time in which the Democratic Party had engaged in demagogic, um, you know, uh, campaigning and or Mm -hmm. putting putting stuff out there in that way. And here we are in 2016 and we're we're focused on Donald Trump, the Republican presidential candidate in behaving this way, but yet we can't ignore that the policies that were passed back in the 90s based off of the campaign tactics of the Democrats at the time did have a negative impact. And here we are in 2016 in which we're talking about the mass incarceration of, of African American males and how that directly impacts a racist institution. What is Hillary Clinton going to do? do um to to address this problem but not only that you know it's like it's like you interrupted her fundraiser Ashley and I think that one of the things that you had called and asked for was a simple apology did you get an apology from Hillary Clinton at that fundraiser
1: no so what Hillary Clinton did in her response um was say that they she apologized for using those words so she said today she would not use those words. But what's even more egregious than the words that she used was her support of the policies, which ultimately is what I wanted a, um, a, an apology for. So, you know, I, I, I have not accepted that response as an apology.
3: And, and again, going back to the bill itself that would have been pa- that was passed, um, there are a lot of Democrats, obviously, and, and certainly Republicans, but assuming you're not going to get any apologies out of the Republicans. Uh, a lot of the Democrats in Congress who voted for these bills, um, are you confronting them? Are you getting any apologies from them? Have any of them come out and said, you know, I've had a change of heart. Oh my God, I can't believe we did this or they're still defending it. What are you getting from them that side?
1: Um, So no, I haven't heard anything from those folks. And I also think that like from the perspective of the people, so like the folks who are interested in um, holding these folks accountable, I think that we are still not on the same page about what accountability ought to look like and that we do kind of have the power to hold these folks accountable. Um, And so I think folks are kind of getting by hoping that their names don't come up or hoping that folks aren't doing the research. Um, uh, And and I think they're kind of sliding on through and, and praying that we don't confront them one day. Are you going to? Um, I plan to I mean, I'm really interested in holding politicians accountable in terms of like strategies of direct action. I don't think it's the only thing that needs to be done, but it's definitely um, a tactic.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I you know i I want to get into uh, a lot of things, but right right after the break, I want to get into basically where we're at. regarding the racial issues the country's facing and also you know what the movement may be calling of hillary clinton in order to get their their support so ashley we're going to take a quick break but when we come back we'll continue with you so stay with us okay okay
1: i think we're ready we're
2: really doing this yeah i'm ready for our family
0: g-r-e-c-a-r-e dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community.
2: Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community.
3: And now, back to The Michelle Miao Show.
4: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, Tuesday, this super Tuesday, this spectacular Tuesday, because John <laughs> Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. <laughs> oh, how nice! Thank you. Uh, I always enjoy doing the show with you, and I think our listeners appreciate it, too. Well, back to the program. Our special guest today by phone is Ashley Williams, who's a, a, a Black Lives Matter um, protest. Well, I shouldn't say just protest, but activist and part of the movement uh, who did protest one of Hillary Clinton's um, fundraisers in Charleston in calling attention and uh, reminding people of this racially charged comment or uh, you know that Hillary Clinton made in referencing the 1994 violent crime control act in calling young black men basically uh, super predators so actually you know right before the break I mentioned that I thought mm-hmm. it was important for us to to get to this place and talk about where we're at today so our presidential candidates um, are Hillary Clinton Republican candidate Donald Trump and and many people saying that uh, neither of those candidates are good enough for them. They, they will be voting for Green Party candidate, Jill Stein. But speaking of the movement, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and where we are, you know, racially, what would Hillary Clinton need to do in order to get the support of the black community? I
1: don't know that there's anything that she can do. Um, I don't know that there's anything that's going to, like, put people back into homes in my community and in communities across the United States. I'm not sure what kind of what she could say or a statement that she could put together that could, you know, make communities come back in connection with the folks that they've lost, Um, acknowledging how prisons and the industrial complex of prisons, like, really makes people, it kills people right. in terms of like literally and figuratively in terms of like men not ever fully being able to reintegrate themselves into society. So I'm not sure that there's anything that she can do that would, you know, undo those very real material harm.
3: Why, why then have we seen throughout the primary season, she was not just winning the African American vote, she was winning it in a number of states at a higher level than Barack Obama when those same mm-hmm. states. What is there a disconnect? within the African-American community, or is your message only reaching a portion of, I mean, what, what cause that, I think watching it from the outside, that, that's kind of like, well, what's going on here? I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, um, so I think that the Clintons have a history of selling out black communities and courting black voters. So I'm not really surprised that, you know, that this is happening. I also think that folks don't really have a good understanding of the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration. And I don't think that they understand how, like, specific um, directions that happen, like what they have to do with how folks get removed from our communities. Um, I think that those lines are not clear, and so I think that part of what needs to happen is like some more education about the context. And I think that folks need to educate themselves and work a little bit harder to understand what's going on, especially given the two choices that folks think they have. This um,
3: election season. It's actually a great segue into kind of what I've been wondering is like, you're a your graduate student, am I right? Yeah, I
1: actually just listened to my thesis last week, and I passed. So congratulations. I'm not a student anymore, unfortunately.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. That's a huge step. Thank you. But how did your political interest and your political education and, and your political energizing, I mean, where did that come from? Was that something that was kind of taught to you, or you, you kind of got it yourself by watching what's going on? I mean, where did that come from?
1: Yeah, um, so um, my family's military, and so I grew up in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and um, at my youth center that was on the military base that I lived on, there was an opportunity for, like, folks to step up and talk to senior Army leadership about issues that the teens were facing at the youth center, and so I was one of the folks who wanted to step up um, and breathe senior Army leadership on this thing, and so then I went from, like, that level to to being a voice for senior Army teams in the whole southeast region of the Army, and then I went to um, the Army team panel, and so I actually became a, a, a voice for youth um, all over the world who are connected to the Army in terms of briefing senior Army leadership. And so at that point I realized, like, oh, I, I, can, like, I can make people who have power listen to me. Um, and then from there I went to college, and I started to get involved in more community things and student organizing. And I realized that, you know, not only, like, can I make people who have power listen to me, but, like, actually it's my responsibility to do that. Um, and so I, I will say that I think the acquittal of George Zimmerman was, like, a turning point for me. Um, that at that point, I was like, wow. So this is, this is what state-sanctioned violence is. And I, I think at that point I had a lot of faith in the system and in the people um, and then at that point, I was like, "Wow, this is all, this is just, this is all constructed, or this is all, mm-hmm. uh, this is not what we think."
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for 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 telling us about your background and kind of what led you to to be a part of the movement, the fight, the activism. Because I think you're right. I think that a lot of people, when you say something like the prison industrial complex, I don't think they understand that. And I don't uh-huh. think they understand, you know, state, state sanctioned violence, um, and, and, you know, things like this. And so just the other day or about a week ago or so, you know, the movement, um, uh, for black lives, which is a coalition of over 50, uh, black organizations, or I should, I, I guess, groups came together, um, and asked for a united platform, and some demands, right? Yeah. And in in a, I think that this is this is a great way of getting the education out and letting people know what is it that the black community needs. Um, I, I'm I'm just curious if you know oh. Hillary Clinton will will actually listen. As you said, it goes back to holding politicians accountable and, and it, it goes from top down if Hillary is in, indeed going to be the next president of the United States. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what those u- united demands are?
1: Um, yeah, so, okay, so I want to say that I acknowledge that, like, what what I have to say and, like, how the tactics that I think are important aren't top down, but they're bottom up. And mm. I also want to acknowledge, like, the limitations of Hillary Clinton herself as someone who's running for president and as possibly the next president. Um, and I just want to make that clear because a similar question, I guess, came up um, around Barack Obama when we, when black folks realized, like, wow, he's actually not doing what he said he was going to do for us or for anyone else that we care about. Um, and so what are we, how, how do we hold him accountable and, like, how did that make us feel, being that he's black and so are we? And so, I mean, part of what we had to do was acknowledge the limitations and it made us um, craft more structural and systemic critiques Um, And not, like, personal critiques. And so while we can talk about, like, how Hillary Clinton is problematic and she's perpetuated problematic things, what I want to call attention to is, like, the system that we're operating in. So even the fact that, like, Donald Trump and her are going to be our two choices, like, that is a problem. So I have a problem with Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and the electoral system as well. Um, and, And so furthermore, when I think about some of these demands that the Movement for Black Lives has made, I think that the, the, these demands are things that address direct issues, but they're about structural and systemic things. One of the ones I'm really um, interested in is divesting uh, money from Israel um, and supporting Palestinians more in a meaningful way here and in Gaza.
4: Mm. Mm-hmm.
3: How, how is that specifically a black issue?
1: Yeah, so Angela Davis wrote a book called Freedom is a Constant Struggle, and in it she talks about um, the ways in which white supremacy, colonization, police brutality, like these are issues for Palestinians in Gaza, Palestinians in the United States, as well as black folks here in the United States. Um, And so being able to show folks across different kinds of oppression, that actually like white supremacy is a problem for all of us. And, you know, the prison industrial complex is a problem for all of us. And the ways in which police have power, that's a problem for all of us. That has been able to help us better see why we have to show it for other folks. Um, and so I like the way I like to kind of show people is like, if they if they come for me tonight, then they'll come for you in the morning. Um, and so, you know, while we have a choice between Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, you know, what, we can talk about which one is the least the lesser of the two eagles all day. But as long as like police have a place to throw people that they think do something against the law, like we're, we solve a problem. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, I saw a quote somewhere in what you were uh, kind of referring to connections to and comparisons with uh, the black Panther movement. And Dr. James Taylor is the head of the African American studies unit here in, uh, uh, at the uh, university of San Francisco. And, uh, he's a historian of the black power movement and he, he's, he's been looking obviously at the black lives matter movement and saying mm-hmm. this this they can really learn from both the, the mistakes and the successes of the black panthers what what are you getting from those and what are some of the differences and similarities that that uh, can be drawn between the two movements
1: yeah so i think that one of the things that i'm getting from folks like the black panthers is how they organized and how they organize their community and how they protect their communities and serve their communities. So, you know, when folks are like, okay, actually, you want the police to be abolished. Well, you know, how are we going to protect or who's going to protect the people? And so I can actually use specific examples of the ways in which the Black Panther Party provided um, protections for their own communities through organizing um, and to show people like, and and not only the Black Panther Party, but like, they didn't invent these kind of um, protective measures. Like, we know that uh, indigenous folks were protecting their communities from the very beginning. Also, something that has been helpful for me as, like, someone who's trying to train and teach people is, like, reminding people where the institution of the police actually came out of, where it came Mm -hmm. from. So the history of police is, like, slave catchers. So before there were police, in terms of being able to protect one's own private property, people were doing that on their own just fine. But it wasn't until people became private property, so like enslaved folks, that was when policing, you know, became a thing in the way that we know it today. And so, acknowledging that, we can we can kind of see like, well, people aren't private property anymore, so we need to reevaluate the the ways in which the police have a role in our community. Um, and I think that. People are afraid, and I think that they're scared to try new things, but reminding them that these things aren't actually new and that they've been done before kind of helps people along the way. Um, I also want to say that I believe that the Black Panther Party have a level of discipline that I don't see, um, I don't see today in terms of research and education and emphasis on training. I'd like to see that more, um, but I also acknowledge how the conditions are different so it's harder for organizers to like get paying jobs um it's harder for people who are interested in this work to devote time to educating themselves and so we have to be a lot more creative now um which is a good thing and a bad thing
4: <laughs> yeah exactly actually we're running out of time i've had a great time talking to you and thank you so much for all that you do to be a part of the movement it is a really really critical time in my opinion and um you know, these uh, politicians, it seems, kind of uh, treat the the system as a revolving door. They're coming in, they're coming out. Um, I, I, we, we have to do more in order to make actual change and i and i love the demands that the movement for black lives has has put together my last question for you is um it's very simple i think that you know my uh, will you continue you know the kind of work that you do will we see more uh, interruptions as as uh, the campaign starts to heat up on on all sides and as we head into the november elections what's going to be most important to you
1: Man, I guess what's going to be most important to me is really remembering again that the system and the structures and the conditions are what I'm really interested in critiquing. And so I want folks to focus on holding people accountable by way of acknowledging how they um, have invested in these systems that ultimately harm us um, and not to get bogged down with um, personal party uh, issues. Um, And so... I think that folks can definitely count on the fact that we are continuing to organize and we're excited about the resistance that is to come.
4: Ashley, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. All right. If you want to see the entire demand platform, you can head to policy.m4bl.org. And I think it's very important, and, and the demands—we use the term demand—it um, makes it sound like you know it's these things that 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 can't be resolved when they're really basic. Human things that we all need, such as in the war on black people, reparations. They demand reparations for harms inflicted on black people from colonialism to slavery through food and housing, redlining, mass incarceration and surveillance. Invest and divest, such as Ashley had mentioned. They demand investments in the education of health and safety of black people instead of investments in the criminalizing, caging and harming of black people. Economic justice, um, community control versus policing. And political power, Uh, you know, if only one group here in this country always maintains the political power, well, where's the diversity in that? So I think these are six things that we can all get behind and support. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue the show. The Michelle Meow Show, that is, with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club.
3: Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
4: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. Thank you for being with us, John.
3: Thank you, Michelle. Always a joy to be here. Uh,
4: our special guest is Emma Green, who writes for the Atlantic, and I'm excited to have her because uh, this, she's got this incredible article out that uh, I've been trying to articulate for a really long time, in which why you know the fight for equal rights uh, and the LGBTQ community is, is literally you know kind of at the beginning stages. So while some of us who are acclimating well after marriage equality, uh, you know, we it, it really we should really take some time to actually look at the policies in place, how certain states are able to pass um, you know, anti-LGBTQ legislation, but even from a federal perspective, people are still talking about the fact that, yeah, you can get married on Saturday, but come Monday, you could be fired for being, you know, identifying as LGBTQI. So the title of her article is, Why the Courts Can't Save LGBT Americans from Discrimination. Let's welcome Emma to the program. Emma, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thank you for having me on the show.
4: So, like I said, you know, I, I love this article um, and in, in terms of it breaking it down for us. I think it was the most articulate article to date, in my opinion, and anything that I'm reading out there that explains uh, the political uh, environment when it comes to LGBT Americans. So uh, let's jump right into the conversations. What do you mean when you say that, why, you know, the courts can't save LGBT Americans from discrimination?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, to your point, I think the political environment is extremely complicated, and I actually think a lot of people don't quite realize what the state of current laws are on LGBT anti-discrimination protections. Um, So just to sort of lay out, at the federal level, there is no explicit prohibition on discrimination against lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender Americans, in terms of whether they get hired or fired, whether a landlord can kick them out of their rented apartment when they discover their sexuality or gender identity, Uh, in terms of public accommodations. And we've been seeing this in things like public bathrooms or in being served in a store. um, The federal government doesn't outlaw that. There's no law that prohibits that. Some states prohibit it and some cities prohibit it. But in general, the country has sort of a patchwork of legal protections. So that's sort of the first thing. Um, And the reason why I focused on the courts in this particular article was that uh, the courts have been struggling with this reality, especially in light of uh, the legalization of same-sex marriage. There have been a number of cases, uh, like the one that I describe in my article, where Uh, For example, here, a woman comes with clear evidence that she was denied promotions and full-time employment specifically because of her sexual orientation. Uh, The facts of the case aren't contested, but when it comes down to it, uh, when she was suing under federal law. The court found, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, found that the law just didn't prohibit what had happened to her. So even though the court basically stated in its opinion that it doesn't agree with how the law is written, it thinks that court precedents on this issue have been confusing, um, it doesn't really have the power to say that what happened to her was illegal uh, or hold her her employer accountable. Um, And I think that frustration has showed up in a number of courts across the country.
3: I, I thought one of the most interesting parts of your article was the the problem we have as a result of sex, the word sex not being defined uh, in mm-hmm. in various pieces of legislation. I, explain why that's important and what problems have arisen directly from that.
2: Yeah, so there are protections against sex discrimination in a couple of. Um, aspects of federal law. Two of the most prominent are Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, which is about employment discrimination, so outlawing sex discrimination in employment. Um, and then Title IX, which is part of the Educational Amendments of 1972, which says that, for example, uh, girls and boys can't be uh, prohibited from participating in the same programs or denied services by schools. Um, but the problem is that there are conflicting interpretations um, that have, especially in the last you know, 10, 20 years, been coming to light about what sex discrimination means. So some uh, legal advocates uh, and even agencies and administrations like the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission believe that sex discrimination also applies to discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation. But some courts, including the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, and in fact, all circuit courts that have come into cases that take up this issue, don't agree that sex actually encompasses gender identity and sexual orientation. So part of it is a lack of explicitness in the law and an unwillingness by Congress and some state legislatures to write explicitly sexual orientation and gender identity into their discrimination prohibitions.
3: I think this whole conversation is really important because I think especially people who generally don't know anything about, you know, the details of of the law, which is frankly, most of us often look at the courts with kind of a wish fulfillment approach. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. why can't they just fix this? Why can't they just say this is legal? This is not and such. And what you're really getting at in this article is that it really matters what each of these words means, because even judges, as you, as you say in there, there are certain judges who would love to vote, you know, I mean, to rule a different way, but Mm -hmm. you know, they're not there as wizards. they're there as, as uh, judges, judges of the law. Um, so what, what I mean, did, did you talk to various judges who were giving you uh, some sense of where they would like to see clarification or, or suggesting what type of clarification would be of the law would be most useful to them?
2: Yeah, well, so over time in reporting on this issue, I've looked at court decisions. I've talked to legal advocates, people who are sort of sorting through this on a daily basis. Um, And I think there are a couple of main conclusions, even for people who disagree about what the current law says. Uh, The first is that, really, when it comes down to it, this is an issue for Congress. And barring that, it's an issue for state governments and legislatures, uh, because they are the ones who have the power to write the law. So if they wanted to, they could explicitly say, sexual orientation discrimination, gender identity-based discrimination is outlawed uh, and rewrite the law to say that. And that would clear up all of the confusion because courts would have a clear law to interpret. Um, But barring that, I I think the the main source of frustration, and, and you can really see this in the Seventh Circuit decision that I talk about here, is the irony in what court precedents and current law has left us with. Um, There's a really powerful line in this decision that says, we're left with a body of law that values wearing of pants and earrings over marriage. And what that means is basically someone who comes to work and they're discriminated against because of you know the way that they act out their gender identity or they wear skirts or they refuse to wear skirts or the way that they talk can actually be the successful basis for a suit in court. But someone who gets married to their same-sex partner and comes into work on Monday in a state where there are not protections uh, can get fired for that, and that's totally legal. And that is ironic in sort of a deep way, the injustice of that and the lack of sort of parity in the law is pretty obvious. Um, so I think that's the major frustration here.
4: I, I wanted to point out, as you concluded the article, um, you know, something that struck out for me was the... Uh or stuck out for me is the the for now the American legal system is stuck. Mm. Explain kind of uh, or elaborate on that a little bit. And in, in, in when you feel stuck, it feels like you can't go up or down. Um, and we're kind of in this interesting space. And whoever the next president is going to be, they have um, you know some appointments that they're they're going to make.
2: Yeah. Well, so I would say the country is stuck on two levels, and this is now looking at the legislative question. Um, I think the first, which is an ironic uh, sort of takeaway from Obergefell, is that because same-sex marriage uh, was legalized and it was declared to be legal by the Supreme Court, uh, what sort of happened as a result of that was a pause in all of the legislative changes that have been happening previous to that on lgbt anti-discrimination protections a lot of states before obergefell had passed these kinds of protections um, but basically they broke down on sort of red blue lines and some of those red states that may have previously been open to these kinds of protections really locked down and in some cases actually pushed in the opposite direction about providing uh, hiring Uh, public accommodations, and housing protections for LGBT Americans. Um, I think the other side of this is Congress, which is Congress has repeatedly uh, had the ability to... Entertain new protections that would be uh, federal and apply across the country for LGBT Americans, and it has not entertained those proposals. Um, Democratic, lawmakers, Democratic lawmakers have introduced uh, such legislation on numerous occasions. Um, and I think when it comes down to it, it's really going to be about the 2016 election, not just about the White House, but all those down ballot races changing the composition of the Senate and changing the composition of the House to really uh, introduce the possibility that Congress would take up this kind of legislation.
3: Did I hear you correctly before you are saying the the main focus of people who want uh, changes in this is on the state level? Because I I would think it kind of from what you're just saying, it would be on the federal level because otherwise you're never going to get this in the red states, these changes. And if you don't have it uniformly across states, you're, you're always going to have the possibility of a district court you know, ruling differently that would affect blue states within its district. Um, so uh, maybe if you could clarify, where kind of is, or I guess, where can the, the most uh, change happen on this? It would be federal, right?
2: You no, know, I definitely think you're right that the most uh, sort of effective and consistent standard could be laid out by Congress. Mm-hmm. But I think for LGBT advocates in particular, Seeing the composition of Congress and seeing where this issue has fallen out along pretty clearly fractious lines, especially over the past few years, um, a lot of them have turned their hopes to the states. And we've seen some campaigns in states like Indiana and Pennsylvania to try to push for this legislation. But ultimately, they haven't been that successful. And that goes back to what I was describing before, which is state legislators kind of digging in their heels. because as a sort of uh, mixed blessing of Obergefell, this has become an issue that they believe their constituents really care about and they believe their constituents see as, as sort of something they aren't supportive of.
4: Emma, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on this program and thank you so much for your article. Like I said, it, it really was one of the most articulate in kind of breaking down where we're at. Um, from a a legislation point of view regarding the LGBTQ community and equality. So thank you for that.
2: Well, I really appreciate your kind words and for your willingness to invite me on.
4: Emma Green, everyone, she's the author of an article that I think you should all... Uh, read it's definitely worth a read and you can find it on the Atlantic and it's titled Why the Courts Can't Save LGBT Americans from Discrimination and for us there is a takeaway and John and I will break down what that takeaway is but we're going to take a break that's right <laughs> stay with us we'll be right back don't go away come right back
2: I think we're ready We're really doing this Yeah I am ready for our family
0: G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community.
3: And now, back to The Michelle Miao Show.
4: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this program, this beautiful Tuesday with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. It's been fun. I love it. I, You know, it's kind of weird from an angle, and that's why uh, I have trouble. I need a little bit of time to swing my chair back over to, <laughs> um, what's this thing called, the board. <laughs> that's what it is, the board. Uh, and I have to do that with my left hand, so I really feel like I, I've been productive this morning. <laughs> it's,
3: it's fun watching you. You're doing a
4: great job. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us. We did uh, have a very, you know, great discussion. I feel like the first half focusing on Hillary Clinton, her race problem, um, and just kind of where I've seen her, you know, everybody evolves. The 90s was definitely a long time ago. And I could say that I've made a lot of mistakes, you know, even 10 years ago of my time. Yes, me and John Zipper, I'm sure you were some, you know, party animal, you yeah. um, before you started this program, <laughs> not even
5: remotely.
4: Uh, but that's not to say that we don't hold politicians accountable. Of course, you know they they are in office because they vowed to do or commit to do some work to represent their people. So it'd be very interesting to to see and or hear what Hillary Clinton has to say regarding the racial issues that um, you know are that impact our community today.
3: I would say it's it's probably much more interesting to see if there are going to be similarly changing views among voters because, um, you know, frankly, a small group of protesters and even within the African-American community, this is a small group of protesters. I mean, mm-hmm. again, what I said is true. I mean, she's been running up huge numbers with black uh, voters, you know, where, including states where she was getting mm-hmm. more than Barack Obama did in the primaries. Um, and. Nobody expects Donald Trump to do well with African American voters in November. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's it is a matter of well, how broadly will people come to accept you know not not just the jargon of a prison industrial complex, but simply the you know the actual reality of the fact that we're ruining lives, we're ruining communities, we're spending a zillion dollars, which is actually why you have some uh, libertarians and Republicans saying this is stupid. We're putting too many people in prisons. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're of course stripping them out of um, our national community, you know, taking away voting rights, basically making them non-citizens. Exactly, exactly. So those kind of things will, what will affect the politicians is what their voters tell them to do. Right. So, um, you know, going and shouting at at, at Trump, I mean, Donald Trump, and I'm no fan of Don, yesterday gave his big (laughs) economic speech and he was interrupted 14 times. Did any of those protesters change a single thing about his speech? No. About his policies? Of course not. No. Um, yeah. And that,
4: that's, you're right. You're yeah. absolutely right. That's where we need to be. It was interesting at the DNC in which there were speakers, you know, there, um, uh, sorry, forgive me, but I don't know exactly. This is sad at the the point where I can't identify the moms of which young men Uh, have passed away in police custody because there's been so many in the last few years. But there were some African-American moms uh, or, you know, who spoke out at the DNC at the same time. You know, that was followed by law enforcement, you know, who talked about the importance of safety of, of police officers and their lives here in this country. And so. Uh, I feel like that, you know, there was a play for, for both sides. But I think the important thing is where e- both communities can come together and 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 agree with is that we, we've got to stop spending so much money because all that's doing is pushing this country to caging people, as uh, I'm, I'm going to borrow, you know, that phrase from the Black Lives Movement. Uh, so I think the takeaway from this is that, Bill Clinton has acknowledged that his 1994, you know, Violent Crime Control Act was a mistake, and parts of it was a mistake, such as the three strikes—you're, you're, you know, you're incarcerated forever or you get life—that um, that resulted in overcrowding of prisons and lots of money being spent in policing people. So he has acknowledged that, and Hillary Clinton, I think, you know, I think that I think that she. I, I think that she's a very intelligent and shrewd woman, a, a true politician. And I think that she gets it. It'll, it'll just be interesting to see if anything changes.
3: It's the voters. I mean, the, the Clintons and the Democrats in Congress at the time, and again, Clinton didn't mm-hmm. vote on this policy. It was, you know, he worked with Congress and they all did it. And in Congress in 94 was controlled by Democrats, I believe, because that was what they lost then at the mm-hmm. end of, of two of ninety nineteen ninety four. 1994. Um, and the Democrats were reacting to a lot of worry across the country, including among Democratic uh, communities about crime. Mm-hmm. So they reacted; they overreacted. I think just about everybody—well, probably not just about everybody—lots of folks on the left agree about. Right. Um, so again, it—you know—it would have been nice if they could have been more uh, perceptive on how they approached crime and and such, but. They were trying actually to protect their flank, if you will, against the Republicans and conservatives who, of course, would have made crime a major issue in in the election. It it ultimately didn't matter because the Republicans made, um, uh, you know, health care reform an issue and and they wrote that whole contract on America uh, into.
4: I like your message. It it is all going to come down to us. And we do need to recognize, you know, our our. I guess, hand in it and that we can be active and we can make change. And just to remind you that you can read the six demands um, that the, uh, the, I'm sorry, it's the movement for black lives, not black lives matter movement, but the movement for black lives. um, And it's a coalition of 50 plus, Black groups who have come together for this united platform of demands, and you could read all of that at policy.m4bl.org. And the reason why I asked you to do that is because I think when you're armed with enough information and um, educate yourself, it's a little easier to understand each other. So moving on now to uh, you know our second interview with Emma Green, um, who writes for the Atlantic. And by the way, I mean, she covers everything from politics to religion to to culture, and uh, and I love her articles. They're very very well written but this particular one explains why the courts can't save the LGBTQ community from discrimination and it's it you know it being a part of the San Francisco Pride Board I totally understand you know kind of like the bureaucracy of like uh, or you know the organization and kind of you have to fall back on oh okay so who wrote this law and what was the intention and then if that person was like a racist, sexist, homophobic, <laughs> transphobic person, yeah. then the, we get the intention, but should we honor it? That's the better question. Well,
3: and that's been the fight really in the, in the Supreme Court over the past, uh, I mean, decades. That when you talk about, you know, the concern, not just on issues of uh, gender and sexuality, but on everything where, you know, well, should we look at what the original, you know, writers of the Constitution originally meant back when, you know, pretty much everyone was white, and if you weren't, chances are you were a slave, and women couldn't vote, and uh, you had to own property even if you were a white man. I mean, you know, it was like, first. there's that argument of going back and trying to figure out what they originally meant, and then there are folks who are more associated with the Democrats of the left who are saying, look, you have to look at the intent of the legislation and not the specific only things that we're talking about there, regulating, you know, powdered muskets and things like that. (laughs) So this is part of that, and and I, and I think it's a it's a it's a good article. It's it's an intelligent article. It's also a very accessible article. So if like me, you're not a legal person, you know, who, yeah, you know, it's like would be like reading a scientific thing. It's it's a good way to understand what exactly is at how, what's at stake and why judges mm-hmm. are sometimes ruling in ways that make you think. Wait a minute, I thought the country was moving toward a more you know equitable. progressive yeah,
4: yeah. Um, uh, movement. Well, it's it's. It's so interesting to say that, well, because we're stuck in identifying and interpreting what sex means or sexual orientation or gender identity. And if these are, you know, things that need to be classified as its own category. And if so, that's not included in a, you know, in federal language, such as race, such as age and and and, and, and so on. Um, it <laughs> because when you're a judge, you want to rule the right way. But so many lives have been impacted because of this little hiccup that we don't have the actual definition written into the law.
3: And here's why it matters, because you, 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 your listeners might be familiar with you know, how uh, the Obama administration issued a rule saying that public schools could lose their federal funding under right. Title IX, I believe it is, um, if they discriminated against uh, transgendered students. Well, that's just an administrative rule now. So the next time there's a Republican administration, you know, they might or might not, depending on whether the Republicans have gone through their transformation yet, mm-hmm. um, of you know politically to being adapting to reality in some ways. Um, they they could just say, oh, doesn't matter, or that we will deny you uh, federal funding exactly. if you don't uh, implement you know discrimination and bathroom laws and stuff like that. So that's why, you know, people are saying this needs to be in law. It needs to be law. It needs to be law that can also then withstand all the challenges that will go through in courts. Mm -hmm. Because any weakness in those laws, you know, will be found.
4: And the takeaway, you know, it's the same takeaway from our previous conversation. How do we get laws to change? Magic. Um, wishful thinking you actually have to do something it comes down to you know voters as well it it depends on who you elect and vote into office and and you know you made a point in this specific conversation in which where does the change need to happen and she mentioned congress um so it's not just like electing the president but you really got to think about you know who your constituents and your representative representatives are you know from uh, i think everything from senators to um Congress to local to state you know representatives
3: if I can challenge all of our listeners if just you don't have to admit this But just uh, thinking in, uh, to yourself right now if you could name who your congressperson is uh, You can probably name your senator. Can you name your congressperson? Can you name your state representative and state legislatures? Legislators excuse me in your state capital if you cannot find out it's easy to google that stuff and find it out, but that's kind of your first step, first of all, of realizing, oh, I'm actually I need to learn more of this stuff because those are the people who, by the way, are making all the rules that affect your business, your life, your relationships, and all that kind of stuff.
4: And with that, we're going to we're gonna leave you. So, you know, marinate on that. Thank you so much for <laughs> joining us here on the program. You can hear John Zipper every Friday here on the Michelle Miao Show at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time with his week-to-week political roundtable talk. Michelle Miao is here Monday through Thursday, at least, at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. For everything else, you can head to michellemiao.com. Enjoy your Tuesday.